Good morning. It's good to see you. Thank you for being at Encounter Church today. Uh, it's been a good morning so far, isn't it? It's just been fun and happy. And yes, I think you can clap for them. Uh, we have an incredible team. And uh, just this past Sunday, we celebrated, uh, last Sunday night, uh, we transformed the room and we just celebrated uh, the team here. That are, There were over 50 people. I don't know if you know this. There were about 50 people every single week who are working behind the scenes, um, mainly on Sunday mornings, people who do not get paid, who do this out of a love for, for this church and for what God's doing in the midst of their lives. And they create what you see every single Sunday, and it's incredible. And, uh, and so this, this team is one of those visible teams, and you just kind of see their giftedness on display. And so, yes, I, I think whenever you see people, yes, it's awesome. So um, my name is Chris, and I'm probably the, uh, like, I'm probably the most uh, least gifted of the group, and I'm okay with that. I think there's something good about not being the smartest person in the room and having a team surrounding you that is just far more gifted than you are. All right, that's a freebie. You can take whatever you want to do with that. But um, let's jump into happiness. Uh, National Geographic this past month uh, has been focused, uh, their kind of cover story was on happiness. Uh, there are a lot of researchers, really smart people who do nothing but study happiness, which you think in some ways would be a fun job. But typically what they do is study unhappy people and realize that most of the world isn't happy is what most of the researchers find. Uh, but the National Geographic uh, magazine last month uh, had this entire kind of spread on happiness. And I thought this was an interesting paragraph inside of it. It said, the happiest man on earth. It may be Alexandro Jazinga. A healthy middle-aged father who socializes at least six hours a day and has a few good friends he can really count on. He sleeps at least seven hours most nights, walks to work, eats six servings of fruits and vegetables most days. He works no more than 40 hours a week at a job he loves with co-workers he enjoys. He spends a few weeks every week volunteering, and on the weekend, he worships God and indulges in his passion for soccer. In short, he makes daily choices that favor happiness. Uh, I just, I, when I was reading that article, I just, I, I love the description of this guy's life. Um, he lives in Costa Rica. He's not in any of our communities. In fact, this whole study was done to kind of capture and consolidate research around where are the happiest places in the world and what are the happiest people in the world. And what stood out to me when I was working through the article was how a nation that has woven into its founding documents the pursuit of happiness is not on that list. That here we are as a nation, our very founding documents has an impulse for the pursuit of happiness, and yet in the world's happiest places, we don't make the list. And as you read through the article and as you dive into random research around this idea of happiness and what, what leads to human flourishing and what leads to human thriving, what you notice is that there's something inherent inside of our culture that seems to be a barrier that prevents us from experiencing some of the things that researchers know we can all enjoy. It seems that there's something in, innate in the American culture that presents a barrier for us to actually experiencing happiness. And what I want to do today is I want to take you to a letter written to a church in a community that I think had some of the same struggles that you and I had. That it's a nation, it's a state that has a lot of things going for it. And yet in the midst of that letter and all the good things, uh, Paul, the writer of this letter, um, uh, one of the most famous apostles in the early church, gives them advice that I think speaks to the barrier they had 
and the barrier that we have. Because there is one single great barrier that you and I have practically daily to experiencing happiness. And it's what Paul points to them that I think you and I will find hope and instruction for us in our own lives. It's found in the, the letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, the, in the church in the New Testament, it's called uh, the book of Philippians. And Philippians is the group of people that live in Philippi. And to kind of give you a little bit of backdrop, Paul writes this letter about 10 years after he starts this church. So Paul, to give you a little bit of an idea of his ambition and who he is, um, Jesus, he is crucified on the cross. He rises from the dead. And part of his kind of um, the mantle that he hang, hands over to his followers is he says, go into Jerusalem, which is where the crucifixion resurrection happens. Judea, that's kind of the the county that Jerusalem would be in, or the region, Samaria, that's the, Samaria is the, kind of the neighboring um, state that borders Judea, and into the ends of the earth. So into all the world, take this message of hope and life and good news and joy to the world. And about a decade after Jesus um, comes back from the dead, his followers have not really gone very far. Jerusalem, Judea, and one or two have accidentally ended up in Samaria. But you're talking about the, about the range of maybe 50 miles. But their mission from Jesus is going to the world. And then lo and behold, here comes Paul. And Paul gathers up with them and says, Okay, you guys seem to have Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. I'll take the rest of the earth. Right? I mean, that's who he is. That's the ambition this guy has. While everyone else is content with focusing on their kind of small portion in life and where they are, he's like, all right, I got the rest of the world. You guys hang out here. I'll see you later. And Paul lives the rest of his life trying to reach the rest of the world. It's incredible. And one of the, one of the ways that he reaches people is he starts churches in these different cities, in these different communities. And one of them is this church in Philippi. And Philippi is a unique place. It's, it's a jewel of the Roman Empire. It which is kind of the, the world-dominating power at the time. It's wealthy, it's influential, it has, it's on a port, it's got all these, these kind of commerce streams passing through. And to be a Philippian is to be a good thing. In a day and age where life expectancy can be just 40 years old, these people are doing really well for themselves. And in the midst of that, there's a church that started. And 10 years after that church starts, Paul writes a letter out of a concern for them. And in working through some of the introductory things, he moves on to what we now have labeled chapter 2. And in verse 3, he says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's what he says in verse 3. The reason he says that is because they are doing things out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Right? This is why he's writing this to them. There's some tension. He says, Rather... In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each to the interest of others. So he's like, look, you guys seem to have this struggle. There's a lot of self selfish ambition. Remember, this is Paul. So he's not knocking ambition. This is the guy who raises his hand and says, I'll take the world. I got this. It's the selfish ambition and the vain conceit. He's like, you guys have got to move away from that. And what does he offer as the alternative? He offers the alternative as selflessness. This valuing others, this investing, this interest in others. 
This is what he offers offers up as an alternative to the lifestyle. He's trying to correct them on their tendency to be selfish. I don't know about you, but it's really easy to be selfish, isn't it? I thought I was pretty selfless, and then I got married. And about the time I thought I worked that out, then I had a child. And I realized, you know what? I really like sleeping at 3 a.m. And I really don't having to wipe someone else's butt, right? All of a sudden, these things that I thought I was, was in fact not true about me. I was really selfish. And it took my wife and then my daughter to kind of start to expose some of this reality in my life. It's really easy to move towards that. And so what does he do? He he, he says, look, you've got to be careful because if, if you're not careful, what's going to happen is you're going to start to run through life and you're going to start to treat people like they're objects. If you're the most important person in the world, that means everyone else is there for you. If your opinion is the most important opinion in the world, that means anyone who disagrees with you is not just wrong, they're an idiot. And you demonize them. It's, it's like we've got to shift out of that and be people who are selfless. But here's what's fascinating, what I didn't tell you. As Paul is writing this letter from prison, so he's sitting in a jail cell somewhere in the Roman Empire, and he writes this letter to these people 10 years after he starts this church because he's burdened for them. Because he recognizes that while I'm sitting in a physical prison, you are in a far worse prison called self-centeredness. Because the prison of me is far stronger. Those bars are far more gripping and suffocating than a physical prison. And out of that concern, Paul's like, I've got to say to you, while I'm in a prison, you are actually living in the prison. Paul's more free than they are. And this is why he writes the letter to them, because he knows that they've been trapped by this lie that to consume that, that the essence of happiness is to consume your way through life and to be self-centered and to, called up, to be called up in the me. Paul writes this not too far um, from a place called the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is an incredibly beautiful space uh, in the nation of Israel. And I've got a picture of it I wanted you to see because I recognize that maybe some of us have never seen the Dead Sea before. Um, this is a stunning body of water. It's the lowest um, point of elevation on planet Earth while you're still in the open air. Okay, you can go into caves and find lower points on Earth, but this is the lowest point on Earth. It's about 1,500 feet beneath sea level. It's incredible. But the reason it's called the Dead Sea is because of this particular geographical oddity that happens. You see, the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. But nothing flows out. And so this little tiny sea gets water in, but no water leaves it. And so what happens is that because there's not a movement and a stream and a flow, the water naturally evaporates, and the saline content that's always present a little bit in water and that's present in the soil inside of the sea, it continues to build to this point that the Dead Sea is almost 35% solidity, where the ocean is only about 3 to 4%. So this is 10 times more salty than the ocean. About 80 miles from the Dead Sea, 
is the Sea of Galilee. And it's this stark contrast because it's called the Dead Sea because nothing's living there. Nothing can live in the waters in the Dead Sea. But the Sea of Galilee, 80 miles north, actually one of the places that water flows through to get to here, people are skiing right now, they're wakeboarding, they're fishing, they have an entire life being given out of this water just 80 miles north of this. And the Dead Sea, I think, is a beautiful illustration of what Paul was trying to grab hold of them and shake them with, that he wanted them to realize that if you have nothing flowing out of you, then ultimately it kills you. That it's one thing to have things flowing into your life, but you have to make sure there are things flowing out of your life. This is kind of the central lie in the Roman Empire at the time. And I would argue not only the Roman Empire, but the central lie that we believe, that we think that we are the most important person and that happiness is about me. The reason I I'm, can be pretty confident around that is that the Gallup industry has been doing polls for about 70 years around this one central question. They ask high school seniors this, are you an important person? Okay. And in 1950s, when they asked high school seniors this question, 12% of them said yes. In the mid-2000s, when they asked high school seniors this same question as they were updating their survey, 80% of them said yes. That's a pretty startling jump. But it's other stats, right? 19% of Americans believe that they're in the top 1% of earners. Not sure how you do that math, <laughs> right? Somebody's not doing it right. But that we live in a culture that, while even to go back to education, um, Americans consistently have ranked confident, the, the most confident in mathematics in the world. We are actually 36th in the world in mathematics. That in the metrics of egotistical narcissistic tendencies, we rank number one in the world. So while the world may be better, we have the beautiful bliss of believing that they're wrong and we actually, in fact, are the best thing that's ever happened, right? This is a struggle that we have to, not just the church in the Philippian context, but the church in the American context, and just Americans in general. And what happens is that we buy into this lie that you consume your way to happiness. And what Paul is trying to communicate, and what the Dead Sea even says to us, if we're willing to look at its example, is that, in fact, it's when you empty yourself that you are most full of life. That is, when you are most empty, that you find yourself most full. And that the key, the fulfillment, is to be a person who's consistently emptying who you are into others. And this is what he's trying to challenge them to think and reflect on. He's like, this is the key to a happy life. This is the key to a full life. And the way he kind of says this is the channel is he says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. The key to this transition from selfishness to selflessness is humility. He says, humility is the gateway to step out of the me-centered world into a we-centered world. C.S. Lewis, I think, has a great definition of humility because in our culture, we tend to think of humility as someone who kind of plays down themselves, right? You compliment them, and they're like, oh, well, you know, anybody could have done that. Not that great. 
that what we, most of us, if we have a definition of humility or an example in our mind of humility, it tends to be false humility. Because anybody who says, oh, it could have been, you know, I'm just a donkey trying to get through life, you know, like the whole Eeyore thing. They're a liar. You're like, look, you're lying. You think you're awesome. I know that. That's why I'm telling you you're awesome. So quit insulting my intelligence by pretending that you're not. C.S. Lewis says humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's a subtle difference, but it's stark. People, when you meet someone who's humble, what stands out about them is practically nothing. It's on the inside that's where the true significant thing is playing out. It's that in the midst of a conversation with a humble person, what you'll find is that they're very fascinated in you because they're not consumed with them. They can ask you questions. They can seek to understand you. They, in, they seem to just be joyfully in their presence. They're not self-consumed. But we live in a culture that, that tends to feed self-centeredness. We shifted a long time ago without even being aware. When social media pressed into our lives, we all became our own brand ambassadors. We all, we all became a walking, talking brand, didn't we? we? It wasn't just Nike or Apple. It was all of a sudden Chris Causey. Because now I have a, fa- a page where I can post my face and make comments and kind of give a running commentary of the highlight reel of my life. No one ever posts the bad things in their life on Facebook, right? And what happens when they do? You're like, they overshared. They should have just, right? You all know that? When we find somebody who actually gets honest on social media, we're like, they did not have to, TMI, right? Because we are in the business of brand building in our personal lives in this culture. And What happens when we begin to practice humility is that we are subtly making the shift towards just even a less focus on ourselves and more focus on others around us. But here's the thing. I want you to push into it a little bit. Like, why? Why does Paul say this is the better way? Why is this, why is selflessness better than self-centeredness? I think that's a valid question. And it's just not that our celebrity culture demonstrates pretty regularly that it's not. It's not just the fact that this, over the last few weeks, we've seen how people who think that they're the most important people on planet Earth objectify men, women, boys, and girls. And that's been on display. It's not just those things. Let's press in deeper. Why is it so important? Why is life found in emptying out yourself? Well, one is that we believe, right, within the Christian belief system, that the giver of life gave us life and established it in such a way that life is found when we give it back out. That the giver of life entrusted to us this principle that when we give our life away, we are most fulfilled. That we are made to be contributors in life, not consumers of life. That when we walk out this image that we believe has been stamped on every man, woman, boy, and girl, the being marked and made in the image of God himself, then that is where this impulse, this fullness of life is found in giving, is because he is a giver. 
And it's not just something theologically. This is demonstrated time and time again, not just on our cable news networks or on our news feed. It's also been demonstrated in a lot of scientific literature. But before we even get to that, it's also something I think because we've been made in the image of God is something we intuitively know. None of us walk into a funeral home and the person is up there or in some container somewhere and people get up and eulogize and say, I'm so glad you're here today. Uh, we're here to celebrate uh, Bob. Bob was the most uh, self-centered, selfish, lying, manipulating. If he wasn't drunk, he was asleep. I believe most of you women slept with him. Right? None of us expect to go to a funeral where people talk like that. And even when we go to a funeral where that's true of the person, people lie. Because we intuitively recognize that a great life is a life that's been given out, a life that's been emptied, a life that's been sacrificed. And when we stand or sit or observe a funeral of someone who's been consumed by themselves their entire life, we recognize why people aren't commenting on it, and we also recognize why people are lying. As we recognize greatness is found in giving away our life. And the research, right, it's not just everything in life. I'm just really trying to convince you and sell you on every single shape and form and fashion this argument that God made us this way. But even scientific literature, there are countless studies that have been done over the last 40 years that points to life of people who volunteer, people who serve, people who give away their lives as people who are happier. They have um, lower risk of mental illness, they live longer, they um, experience a well-being overall in life, they are, their immune systems are stronger. I mean, you can go through the list of reasons that people who give and serve actually are healthier, happier, holistically better individuals than their contemporaries who don't serve. In fact, even teenagers that serve um, even if they don't want to, have been found to have lower teenage pregnancy and lower risk for drug use. So if you're a parent in here, you just said, my kid is going to serve somewhere, right? Because <laughs> they don't have to like it. They still get the benefits. And you do too. And it's because we've been made in the image of a God who gave and that we find our fullness when we empty ourselves out. And this impulse is what Paul is pointing them to over and over and over again. And it's why even as a church, we created a space and a place where people could serve and thrive. As a church on Sunday morning, one of the things that excites me every time I walk in is to see teenagers serving. Right? That some of our best greeters can't even drive a car yet. Some of our best workers... They, they, they rely on their parents to get here. And I love that at this church, and some of them are sitting in this room, some of these little heroes are right beside you, that at this church, we've created a space and a place where when most kids are wanting to step away from church, we have created a space where kids can step into it. And I love it that even if I wasn't the pastor of this church, I would want to be present in attending this church. Because I want my daughter to grow up in this kind of environment. 
where we get that there's something good about emptying ourselves out. It's why on Sunday mornings, we, like I said earlier at the beginning, that we, we have over 50 people who serve in order to create this space. And that last weekend, we celebrated them in this room just to say thank you. But one of the beauties is that as we've done that, um, we've seen growth. We've steadily increased that uh, when we began meeting and gathering two years ago, uh, we were less than, there's, there's 70 more people here on any given week than there was two years ago. And so what's happened is as we're growing, so does our needs in our team. In a year, it's quite possible that we're going to have to go to two services to handle the continued growth that we're seeing. That on Christmas Eve, in fact, if everyone who, ever, who regularly attends Encounter Church showed up on, on one Sunday, we would have to go multiple services that day. On Christmas Eve, we're going to have two services because we recognize that's probably going to be the day that all the people who regularly attend Encounter Church are going to show up. And let me give you an opportunity. There, as the team is growing, we need you. It's been documented in countless studies. It's been documented in our lives as something intuitively we get that we find our fullness when we empty ourselves out. And we have created a space at this church that no matter what you believe, no matter where you are in your journey, we have a space and a place for you. That if you're not sure what you believe, you're not sure kind of even where you are in that faith journey or faith spectrum, or even if you believe in Jesus, we still believe you can make a great cup of coffee, right? And we've created spaces where all of us can work together to contribute to a greater, bigger good than what any of us could do on our own. But we actually, on the, on the necks of every single volunteer you see is a lanyard, and on the back of that is, is a win. We believe every single person can have a victory and a win on Sunday morning when they serve. There, there are preschool, elementary, and baby toddler workers who have fan clubs. My daughter's a member of one. She's like paying dues. I'm telling you, there are incredible people at this church in that when you say yes to serving, you're not just saying yes to him. You're not just saying yes to a better, wholer, healthier life. You're also saying yes to a great team that you get to be a part of. I think this is one of the greatest teams you can ever serve on. And that's why right after service today, one of the things that we're going we're gonna to have in starting point, the two glass rooms when you first walk in, we're going to have those leaders representing all these different teams and all the different ways that you can serve present. Because for some of you, you are currently becoming the Dead Sea. And you're not life-giving. And if, and if you, you've got to serve in order to move yourself into a life of happiness, then why not serve here? And if you're open to that, then swing by starting point or the room next door. I promise you, we have a space and a place for you where you can connect, where you can get connected, and where you can have a win every single time you serve here. And that today, maybe the next step for you is to say yes to an opportunity to empty yourself out so that you can find the fulfillment that you've been searching for. Because we believe, well, it's not even we believe. Let me just be I am on this stage today not because of a pastor, but because of a man who is an eye surgeon who volunteered at a church. That 
for maybe some of you are like, oh, he's just a pastor. He's trying to press me in or get me to serve because they need people to serve. No, I, I want you to serve because not I want to get something from you. It's that I want something for you because I know there are future versions of me who are waiting to walk in the door. And the reason I am the man I am today is because there was someone like you in your professional career and your walk of life who was willing to say yes to stepping in on Sunday morning. And that yes to Sunday morning put you in the presence of someone like me that set me on the path that's led me to where I am today. It is not a pastor who's put me on this platform to preach every Sunday. It was a volunteer who said yes. And I imagine if we went around this room that we would find that most people who impacted your life were people who stepped in when they didn't have to, too. That they were the ones who ended up having an impact in your life, whether it was a coach, right? Or whether it was a, some worker at a church, or whether it was an after-school program, that someone who didn't have to say yes said yes, and it changed your life. And we've created spaces for you to be a part of changing people's lives here. And before you go pick up your child today, if you don't have a place to serve, take three to five minutes and walk through the room, look at the card, and try it out. There's a place for you. And I think it's not just in serving here, it's also even in your professional career. My first ever job was Walmart, and I uh, had the opportunity of being uh, Walmart at 15 years old. Sam Walton was still alive, and, and so what got beat into me and trained into me at an early age was customer service and customer-centric service, and to the point that now today I've been ruined. You can't walk within 10 feet of me without me looking you in the eye and smiling at you. The reason why is because I watched video after video of Sam Walton saying the 10-fit rule. When someone gets within 10 feet of you, you look them in the eye and you smile at them. And you say, hi, how can I help you? When I go into Walmart today, I still look at people, smile, and have the impulse to say, how can I help you? And in fact, if I went to Walmart today, there is a greater than likelihood chance that I would probably end up helping someone find something in the store because I can't help it. Because that happens. My wife has learned if I disappear at Walmart, it's probably because someone said, yes, you can help me. Where's deodorant? And I'm like, great question. Let's go. And we go find it. And I, but I get so fired up when at businesses, people have forgotten that customers are the reason businesses exist. And so if you work in a field where customers are, are the reason you exist, you can stand out in all of your peers just by being a good customer-centric individual. And underneath that kind of catchy business line or that cliche statement is what Paul's advice was. To love and to value others and to invest in them and to consider them better. Like, do not be the person on the call center phone call that, that treats me like I'm annoying you or I interrupted you, right? I mean, how often is that the like, experience that we have when we try to buy something, purchase something, get help in something? And so it's even if we just started doing this in our business, in our professional careers, we would stand out because this is rare in our society. And imagine if you went into your house that as you drove home from work after being focused on others and as you pulled up, you turned off the key and you prayed a quiet prayer, God help me in humility, to value others more than I value myself. And then you walked into your home with that kind of attitude. Could you imagine the relationship with your spouse? Could you imagine 
the relationships you could have with your kids or your roommate. If you walked in to each moment of life with the attitude that says, I want to value others and put their needs above my own. And in pouring yourself out, what you would find is what Jesus constructed inside of us is this principle that when we empty ourselves out, we find ourselves full. This last passage, and then I'll wrap it up. Paul, in trying to make sure they really understood this, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used, something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But Paul's ultimate advice, the, the reason Paul says, I'm writing this letter to you from prison, ultimately because of what Jesus did for you and me. That because of his example, you and I can be people who live out this example too. That no matter what title you have, no matter what credentials you have, no matter what school you graduated from, no matter who your family is, what kind of car you own. Like none of us, Paul says, none of us are in the same like atmosphere and, and category as what Jesus did. Jesus left heaven to step into earth. He left perfection to step into imperfection. He left a world with no traffic jams. No difficult people, no frustrations to step in a world that's marked by those things. He left a world that was not broken to step into a world that was. And he's like, look, Jesus made that leap for you and me. That's why I can confidently say to you, Philippi, you should take that step for them too. And it's why even 2,000 years later, I can say to you and to myself that confidently that none of us can relate to Jesus and what he did for us. But we can all, all get to copy him in the various different places of life, whether it's in our home, whether it's in our professional careers, or whether it's by saying yes to serving somewhere here or somewhere else. That Paul lifted up Jesus and who he was and the fact that he emptied himself so much that he died on a cross so that we could have life and fullness. That he, above all other ones, is the example that Paul quotes, that Paul points to, to call us to a life, not of being consumers, but of being contributors, not of people who are the Dead Sea, but people who are living waters, people who have understood that the key to happiness is found in emptying ourselves and finding fulfillment. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your example. Thank you for your sacrifice on a cross. Thank you for the way that you have modeled for us a pathway for life and fulfillment and fullness. And I pray that you would help us to be people who step out in holiness, step out in humility, to step out 
and helpfulness and that we would make a difference, that we would serve the people around us, the people that we lock eyes with every single day. And then thank you especially that you stepped out for us, that you and your example, that we, you did for us what we did not deserve and what we didn't even ask for. And I pray that in those moments, in those selfish moments, that you would stir us and remind us of what you did. And for those who are in the room who aren't sure about that, that God, you would bring greater clarity in their journey to see the love, to see the demonstration and the declaration that your life, death, and resurrection brings. God, may you unleash in this room and the lives of people in this room a force of good and a force of service and a force of love and a force of humility that transforms businesses, that transforms industries, that transforms homes, that transforms our own lives. And may there be hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people who one day stand and say that not because of a pastor in a church, but because of a person who said, yes, my life is different today. And so thank you for the potential that this room represents and for your invitation to be a part of what you're doing and bringing love, hope, joy, and peace to people all around the world. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.